Please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 as we continue walking our way through the prophecy of Isaiah. I was going to say the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet. That's a wee bit redundant now, isn't it? Give you just a minute to turn there. And Oh, and as a reminder, we do print the sermon text in the bulletin there if you picked up a copy of it. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you for any reason. Hear now the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of our Lord. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down on this mountain. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. His straw is trampled down in a dunghill. He will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. In the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you were good. And what you do is good. Father, would you give us eyes to see all the goodness that you have in store for us, ears to hear the message that you want to hear, hearts that are ready to respond to all you have for us. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. 700 years after Isaiah, there was a disciple whom Jesus loved, who was exiled, banished because of his faith. But God encouraged John by showing him a vision of the end. He showed him many pictures, including a wedding feast. In order to say, all things will be made new. All things are going to be better. You've heard these words before, probably. Revelation 19.6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. About a hundred years ago, William Hendrickson wrote this about that passage. He said, this feast in Revelation lasts not one week or two weeks, which is the norm for Jewish wedding feasts, but throughout all eternity. This feast is the climax of that entire process by means of which the bridegroom, Christ, comes to his bride, the church. It is the goal and purpose of that ever-increasing intimacy, union, fellowship, and communion between the Redeemer and the redeemed. It will be a holy, blessed, everlasting fellowship, the fullest realization of all the promises of the gospel. And I believe we see that same feast here in Isaiah 25. Oh, there's no bride or bridegroom mentioned, but there's a feast. There's rich food and really good wine. There are guests from every nation. This is the feast to end all feasts. The host is the Lord of hosts, God himself, God of gods, King of kings. This passage is about a big God who cares for his small, weary, worn out people, who conquers the angry and violent bullies of the world, who refuses to let evil win, who then throws a feast to celebrate it all, to let his weary people fill their soul with rich food, and everything they need to satisfy them. Are you hungry for that type of God this morning? Are you hungry for that kind of deliverance and salvation? Hunger makes a great sauce, as my father-in-law says, so let's taste and see that our God is good. Three points this morning about who God is and what God does for his weary people. First, you see this, God has done wonderful things. God has done wonderful things. Verse 1, let's read it. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For now, Isaiah sings alone for the next four verses. Because his God is great. And our words about God need to reflect how big he really is. And furthermore, that's what we will want to do when we realize what he has done, what he will do. You'll notice Isaiah speaks in the past tense here of what God has done. Because he has a glimpse, as do we, of the future. We're looking at a vision of the end. When the wonderful, miraculous things that God has done will have been done, will have already been accomplished. When his plans formed from of old will now have happened. Those faithful and sure plans, faithful and sure, both of them, the words in Hebrew, they both come from a form of the word amen. It's a unique choice of words meant to say, quote, that God has every imaginable faithfulness or perfect or quintessential faithfulness. Part of God's wonder, you see, is the fact that he does not change. He never changes his mind. Now, at times, he might reveal more or less of his plans to us, but God does not change. God does not need the change. Why would God's plans ever need the change? As if he doesn't know what we'll do before we do it. As if 
He is something less than sovereign over us and over his world. Just last chapter, we talked about how we all have, how all of mankind has broken the everlasting covenant. And yet God's faithfulness to his covenant does not change. These are some of the wonderful things that God does. It's what you see in this passage. You don't see the light and momentary afflictions. Isaiah is not focusing on those. Not the ones from our day, not the ones from his day. Some nation, you know, was probably waiting to invade God's people as Isaiah wrote this. Seemingly all of Isaiah fits that category. Isaiah's day was not a peaceful time for Israel, for God's people. But God has given Isaiah, in all of us, a vision of the end, a vision that lifts us out of the muck and mire of our present circumstances, out of our struggles, out of our troubles. Isaiah knew... Even in chapter 24, as he proclaimed judgment upon the whole earth, he knew that there were a few who had not forsaken God, a few who were left, chapter 24, verse 6, a few who were beaten down, weary, wondering when God was going to show up and end all the suffering. And this song is for them, this song of the wonderful things that God has done and will do in the future. You could classify those wonderful things several ways. One of them is to say that God will oppose the proud. He will give grace to the humble. You'll notice those are our next two points. I think they flow out of verse 1. But before we get there, don't miss the the context here, this whole chapter. In a dark time for Israel, Isaiah saw reasons to praise God for his wonderful things, for his wonderful deeds. We too... Always have reason to praise God for the wonderful things he has done and will do. And your soul will be better off if you do. Why do I say it that way? Well, I could say it's your duty. You just need to do it. And that's true enough. Some of us are duty-driven people. Some of us are, well, we hate all things that reek of duty. At the end of the day, None of us have done our duty. We have broken the everlasting covenant. We were faithless. We rebelled. But if we remember the faithfulness that God has shown to us, we'll be much better off in the long run. That's what another prophet found. Talking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah surveyed the rubble that was Jerusalem after her fall. And he said this, Lamentations 3, verses 19 to 24. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him God has done wonderful things, and he will do more. Our God has done wonderful things. What is one of those things? Well, that leads to our second point. God opposes the proud. You see this, I think, sprinkled all throughout these verses, 2 through 5 and 10 through 12 especially. God opposes the proud. ESV Study Bible, it says the original audience of Isaiah 1 to 39, I think I said this last week, was God's rebellious people craving worldly security. But that same note says God's action in those chapters. 
is purifying a remnant. Purifying a remnant through judgment. Never forget about the remnant in Isaiah. Might seem like everyone is faithless as you read these pages, but not quite. We need to see these judgment passages through the eyes of the remnant. Those who probably said things like this. Maybe we need something more than worldly security that our neighbors can provide for us. Their might, their riches. Maybe we need something more. Maybe we need to return to the Lord, to rest in Him. Maybe we need to let Him heal our land. Maybe God wants judgment, revival, repentance to begin with the household of God. How popular do you think those people were? You think they were ever oppressed? Maybe physically, maybe just psychologically. You're crazy. Why are you saying things like that? Do you think those people ever felt strange? Like God had forgotten them? Like God was just letting these evil, the the mighty, the, the rebellious do whatever they wanted with no consequences? Did they ever feel like that? How would they have heard Isaiah's song, verses 2 and 3. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Think they would have heard this and said, God has done wonderful things, miraculous things, impossible things. He has humbled the ruthless nations around them. He stopped them in their tracks. Verse 4, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat for the breath of the ruthless. It's like a storm against a wall. For those who were rich toward God, but poor in the world's eyes, poor in power, poor in wealth, poor in resources. Only God could help them. Only He could be their shade in the heat of the desert. Only He could stop the breath or the wind of these storms, these other nations that beat against their walls. Only He could do that. Verse 5 says, like, like heat in a dry place. I think that phrase belongs with the rest of verse 5. It says, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. In other words, God subdued the roar of foreigners, ungodly nations who were coming in to invade them. He subdued the roar of foreigners who wanted to destroy his people in the same way that a cloud subdues the heat of the sun, just, just as effortlessly. In all of this, verses 10 through 12 shows us more of the same. Look at verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. There's a mountain in verse 6. It hosts a great feast. Moab's mountain, very different fate, as will all who pridefully trust in themselves and don't want to turn to God. It says they will be opposed by God, trampled down, quote, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. By the way, that word for dunghill in Hebrew sounds like a certain city of Moab. Dunghill, kids, that's a fancy word for animal poop or manure. What's the point? Why? How humiliating for them. How humiliating. How sad. 
how avoidable, how preventable, if only they had turned to the Lord like a certain Moabite named Ruth. Then verse 11, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. The first he is, is Moab. Moab and all those who exhibit the spirit of Moab, they'll spread out their hands. They'll try to swim out of the mess that surrounds them. They will do it. That's the point. Their pompous pride will say, I can fix this. I can fix what's wrong with me. Verse 12, how will that go? In the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down, God will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. Again, God opposes the proud. That will always be good news for God's people whom the world often overlooks and tramples upon. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's not in this passage. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 32 or Romans 12. But that is both an encouragement to us and a rebuke. It's an encouragement because God knows that there is evil in the world and he promises to take vengeance against it. And what's the rebuke? I think it's like this. If you're angry, God is saying, simmer down. I've got this. See, there is a time and a place for anger. The Psalms are full of angry words spoken to God, asking God to do something about this. But if we know that he will do something, then we can begin to settle down and trust him. Several of you told me, Thank you for what I said last week. Several of you mentioned the part about all of us being angry and upset. Wasn't the first time I had said that. More, maybe we're more ready to hear it now. But nonetheless, isn't this what we all need to know? That God will right all the wrongs that make us angry. But let's be careful. I'm not saying God is going to punish everyone that you're angry with. Not necessarily. Why not? Well, you and I may be angry about the right things, or maybe not. Maybe we're angry about the wrong things. I don't know. Because I don't know every thought that all of you have. You know, even though there is an increasing amount of polarization in our society, which started a long time before 2020, by the way, we are all unique people. Individuals with unique struggles, with nuanced opinions, nuanced thoughts, fears, frustrations, more. But when almost everybody is angry and overreacting, it gets really hard to listen to all those nuances. Really hard to empathize. Really hard to listen. And if you've ever said, why won't somebody just listen to me? Then you get it. Maybe more than you realize. So what do we do with all that? Thanks for pointing out the problem, Matt. Do you have a solution? Not a quick one. We could worry more about understanding than being understood. That would help. But that just leads to, but, but how do I find the strength, the patience to do all that? You do it by remembering that God opposes the proud. All the proud, ruthless, violent people that are irritating you, all the opinions that are making you mad. God knows. God sees. 
God will not let evil win. Some of the angry people will calm down by God's grace. Maybe their opinions will change. Maybe they'll state them more calmly, respectfully, lovingly. Some of the angry people will change their mind if God thinks they need to. He'll do that when God changes their heart. Then some of the angry people might ultimately be angry at God. Some of them may never change. Their opinions won't change. Their attitude won't change. Their heart won't change. But again, God will not let them win. And if I know that, it will help me turn to God with my anger. It will help me trust God with my anger. God will either fix them or defeat them. Same goes for me, for all of us. Either way, evil will not win. God promises, Shorter Catechism says, to conquer all of his and all of our enemies. And by our enemies, I mean those who hate us, whom we are called to love, until they repent or until Jesus returns. God opposes the proud, including me, if need, if need be. God opposes the proud. God is a stronghold for the needy. Or as scripture says elsewhere, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That leads to our third point this morning. God gives grace to the humble. Verses 4 through 9. You could also say God does wonderful things by giving grace to the humble. And what magnificent, marvelous grace we see in these verses to the poor, to the downtrodden, to those who know they can't save themselves. It starts in verse 4. You have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. He is our fortress, it says here. And then it, of course, goes on to talk about how he will conquer the enemy. In verse three, right before that, it says that strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. God is wiping out the enemies who oppress the humble. What is life going to be like once that happens fully and finally? Well, it'll be like this. We go from a fortress to a feast. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, uh, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined even a teetotaler might admit that that sounds glorious and poetic. The repetition, the imagery in Hebrew, it's full of S's and SH's and M sounds. It's, it's a feast with all the happy images that that implies. A feast, it says, of rich or fat food, full of marrow. When it says fat, it doesn't mean all that fat that you trim off the edge of the steak or the pork chop. No, it's, it's like this. It'd be like saying, I had a big, fat, bone-in ribeye last night with rich flavoring and marbling. Oh, it was fabulous. Actually, I had really good salmon, some very good cookies to finish it off, but, but you get the point. Oh, and to compliment that, to compliment this bone-in ribeye of my dreams, there was well-aged wine, aged wine, well-refined. Or as the King James says, wine aged on the lees. That 
It's a technical term still used today for the process the French call surly aging wine that is aged in the tank with all of the wine skins and dead yeast cells so that it gives the wine this rich, complex, satisfying flavor. In other words, if Isaiah was writing today, he might have said, this is the finest white burgundy, French Montrachet. It's followed by Grand Cru Red Burgundy, Premier Cru Red Bordeaux. This is the creme de la creme, the best of the best. As one commentator says, by implication, all of this is free. It's on the house. It's just like Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. I had pizza with friends on Monday, offered to pay my share. My friend said, your money's not good with me. I smiled. He smiled. Why do I say that? Your money is no good at this feast. It's an insult to the king who purchased your admission at the cost of his own precious blood, his own costly, valuable, priceless blood. Because what is this food? What is this feast all about? Now, first off, I I think it's not merely a symbol. I think there will be a feast in heaven. Revelation 19 says so. Jesus implies it, doesn't he? Matthew 26, 29 at the Last Supper when he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I think there will be real food in heaven. But the rich food itself is a symbol of all the blessings of salvation. It's why I often invite us to the Lord's table by saying, Feast upon Christ and all his benefits to you. The extravagance of the food shows you the extravagant goodness of your God. Reflecting upon this passage in Isaiah 55, Barry Webb says this, The rich food is abundant pardon, forgiveness. What's he talking about? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord. Taste and see that he is good. Seek him. Come to the table. I know a pastor in Iowa, he likes to use the Lord's Supper as a gospel opportunity. He likes to say, there is still room at this table. Still room at the feast. It's a feast, did you notice, for all peoples. All who humble themselves and take refuge in him. One hymn says, while all our hearts in all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? As good as the food is, this feast keeps getting better. Look at verse 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will 
swallow up this veil that blinds the nations, that does not allow them to see the good news of the gospel. That same hymn, it says, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. God will take this veil of blindness away so that the nations will flow to him. Many would say that has happened after the first coming of Christ and that we live in that age when the nations are beginning to come to him. It will not come in full until later. But, but when I say all the nations, what do I mean? Does this mean that there should be no unbelief, that everyone should be a Christian? Do I mean all without exception, as it's been said? No, but all without distinction. In other words, not every person will come. But every kind of person from every nation will find their truest identity, their truest joy in Him because He gives grace to the humble. He gives them a fortress when they need it. He gives them a feast. He gives them final victory as well. Look at verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. John Owen wrote a treatise titled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's what's foreshadowed here. It's what's explained in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your sting? Death, the ultimate enemy, will die. God's people will rejoice. Tears will become extinct. As Alec Morick here says, it is the Lord himself who will attend to our tears moving from person to person until each eye has been dried. Can God do that? Can he do that? Of course he can. Of course the omnipotent, omnipresent God can wipe away every single tear from all of his people by himself. Revelation 21 agrees. And then another song will arise. This one, a collective song. Thousands upon thousands of tongues singing together. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, <clears throat> backing up slightly, verse 8 says that God will remove our reproach. Not a common word, reproach, disapproval might work. The wrath of social media or whoever does not approve of you might be a suitable synonym as well. Do God's people need to hear that, that our reproach will be removed? Alec Moitier, who passed away in 2016, who isn't, wasn't on social media, as best I can tell, he thinks so. He says, as long as life in this world endures, there are innumerable ways in which the people of God are under reproach and hindered by circumstances and sin from living according to their true dignity. All this will be taken away. If you are in Christ... You will no longer be the neglected, the mistreated, the unwanted. You will one day be the VIP, the guest of honor. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, 
but because God chose to lavish this honor upon you, humbling you, but in a good way. You will eat and drink, but not like Isaiah 22, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, they said. You will eat and drink, not in denial, not in defiance, but in true delight. Because one day you will not have a care or concern in all the world. Every enemy, every annoyance will fade away. Every wrong will be righted. Is that what you want? Is that what you're hungry for? Then come, my friends. There is still room at his table. And if you've already been invited, you don't have to come alone. Earlier, I was quoting two verses from the wonderful hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. The final verse goes like this. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one heart and soul and voice sing your redeeming grace. Last week, I asked you, what would you do if you were on the Titanic and you knew how things were going to end? Let me flip that a bit this week. What would you do if you realized you were headed for this feast? How would your daily attitude and outlook change? How would you treat your friends and neighbors, even your enemies? How would you handle the light and momentary afflictions of this earth as you look forward to the grand feast to come? How would life look different if you knew that this feast was waiting for you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we long to taste and see your goodness. We have appetizers of it. We have hints. We have previews. We have the smallest idea on this earth. And Father, let that not disappoint us. Let it be a needed dose of perspective for us. This is not all there is. This is not as good as it gets. It gets much, much better. We have plenty that we can give thanks for even now. But we have much more waiting in store for us. And so as we long for that day, would you allow the small taste, the appetizer, the hors d'oeuvre, would you allow that to satisfy us, to keep us going until that final glorious day. We ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.